Welcome to Sports Weekly with Ayaz Memon. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to yet another episode of Sports Weekly with Ayaz Memon. As always, we've got a lot of action to cover and it starts with a bit of a heartbreak, a bit of disappointment, but also proof that New Zealand are the preeminent world champions of test match cricket. Hi Ayaz, welcome to the show. Hello, Mr. Fantastic. It's been a fan- you know it's been a fantastic uh, test match, as we know. Uh, if I might be permitted a little alliteration, the the test match was a thriller, as it turned out. Not that it was a thriller in the conventional sense that either team could have won. I think by post in the second session on the last day, it was clear after a, a few wickets fell that New Zealand can't win. But you know, for the match to go on almost till virtually the last ball of the fifth day's play could have decided the match in India's favour or not, or a draw. As it turned out, it happened to be a draw. So, in, in that sense, it was edge-of-the-seat excitement. Uh, New Zealand showing a lot of gumption, a lot of pluck. But I must add here a little sense of disappointment that I had with the New Zealand batting approach. Uh, it didn't kind of look like a team which is extremely confident of its uh, main batsmen uh, playing on these on these tracks against Indian spinners on, on Indian pitches. And that seemed to be a bit jarring for me because New Zealand in the last two years, three years, maybe four years, have been a very enterprising team. I mean, they not have been; they may not have been the most flamboyant. They're not, you know, not so strong on body language like the Aussies, and they don't have a much brouhaha surrounding them. But they are a very efficient team, and they're a team which has been capitalizing on opportunities to go out and win matches. That's how they won the World Test Championship against India. You know, for four days, it seemed that the match was a seesaw struggle. India had moved ahead. Finally, on the last day, New Zealand, in a fantastic display of batsmanship, they went on to win the test. Here, in the first innings, a 151-run opening partnership, you know, which is, yes, I mean, it took a little while, but you expect that because they are chasing or they were, you know, India had made 345. That was their first objective to get past that. And they suddenly put the shutters down and the batting became so dogged and dour and unenterprising that 296 runs in 142 overs is not how teams will win matches on slow turning pitches which you find in the subcontinent. Certainly not champion teams. And in the second innings also, look at what happened. They lost a wicket on the fourth day, last last over or second last over. Started the day well. Night Watchman and Tom Latham, who was one of the heroes for New Zealand in this match, saw through till, till lunch. And then after lunch, as soon as you know, they lost one wicket and not Latham, the night watchman. William Somerville. They just went into their shell. William Somerville. They just went into their shell, including Williamson. Kane Williamson, who's a great batsman. And because they went into the shell, the Indian captain, Ajinkya Rani, could attack them with more aggressive fields. You know, he was not bothered because the runs were not coming. Even the singles were not coming. And the pressure kept piling. And then once Williamson got out and Latham, Latham got out, you know, the batting just caved in. And... It, it took all the efforts of the tail-enders. I must mention here, Rachin Ravindranath, who actually played a stellar knock in his debut match. He didn't score too many runs, but he showed great nerves uh, and, you know, stuck it out till the end. He and Ajaz uh, Patel. I mean, imagine New Zealand being saved by an Ajaz Patel and a Rachin <laughs> Ravindranath, you know. <laughs> so that's how globalized cricket has been and certainly it's showing. It's also reflecting the multiculturalism of New Zealand society, isn't it? It's so fantastic. So it's a great, I mean, in the sense, New Zealand have served themselves well because the last time they were here, they lost 3-0. So they have not lost the first test match. 
they have a chance to win the second and if they win a match in india and go from here boy that is going to be some achievement and you know looking at the way their team performed uh, their fast bowlers did most of the wicket taking in both innings and mumbai typically does favor fast bowlers uh, it's been known to be a dust bowl also but the first morning will be crucial uh, so the toss will again be crucial but just for a moment staying with this test match i think uh, one of the biggest highlights for india has to be shreya sayer and the application that he showed and what a debut it was for him it was i mean in my opinion there were many players who did extremely well in this match you know will will young uh, tom latham tom tim saudi and uh, kyle jamison i mean you know on a on a pitch which had very little for fast bowlers these these guys picked up 14 out of 17 wickets for new zealand with a little help from the spinners it could have been tighter the match but the two outstanding performers one was a debutant the other was a veteran the debutant was shreyas ayer a century and a half century in the same match and both made in a crisis in both innings in the first as well as in i mean the second innings i thought you know the half century was better than the century because india were 51 for 5 and even if you add the 49 runs lead on the first innings it was 100 for 5 had we lost the remaining five wickets for another 56 runs this match was lost so shreyas ayer along with ravi chandran ashwin and akshar patel and of course rizman saha and this is not the first time that the in, that india's lower order has kind of you know pulled the team out of a rut remember a couple of times in australia in the test matches there that was a great series in in 2020 then even recently in england uh, a fantastic partnership between mohammad shami and jaspreet bumrah pulled india out of the woods and you know finally led to a win so is the top order which has been struggling we'll talk about that but just to mention the two heroes shreyas ayer he's been waiting for a while he's 26 years old and uh, he's been waiting for a while to get a place in the team and now that he's coming actually if virat kohli was playing he probably wouldn't have played you know and we don't know whether he would have then got a look in in the second test maybe maybe not we don't know but because he got this chance he's been waiting for a while he's been vocal about wanting to get a chance he came and showed the full extent of his desire and his skills and his ability and it was fabulous to watch uh, he's a very enterprising batsman he's got a vast repertoire of strokes but he's also got a very strong uh, you know tough mind and he's he's also bats bats with a lot of responsibility yeah he's probably a long term player at 26 he's probably got a good 7 8 years at least in him and maybe a few more probably a captain for the future he's kind of been touted as that in other quarters for other formats already yeah i mean but you know captaincy apart i mean the captaincy it can happen but he's 26 i think right now for him what he's done successfully is that now you can't keep him out of the test team so he has to play the next test and if he does well enough i mean even if he doesn't do well enough i think he's surely on the squad in the squad to go to south africa and that's where he needs to start showing his prowess and doing runs making runs overseas to become A, a completely acceptable fixture of the indian batting interesting point you mentioned that he's now made a spot for himself but at whose cost i mean the two major sort of uh, performances that stuck out one was mayank agarwal who's just not finding form at the top of the order who could possibly replace him now if virat kohli is coming back for the second test which he is as captain who makes way for him shreyas ayer can't no he, he certainly not you know i mean but before i come there and you know before we get to the what because that's a big big quandary for the selectors who will they leave out if virat comes in but let's let me talk i mentioned about shreyas there is the other player who's the veteran who shone was ravichandran ashwin he's gone past harbhajan singh's you know wicket tally he picked up 
wickets in both innings. He looked the most impressive of the Indian spinners. And he played handy knocks in both innings. In both innings, his innings, uh, you know, his, the runs that he made were so crucial. So, Ravi Chandran Ashwin is serving out a reminder every time he walks out in whatever format that, you know, he you can't just ignore him. Whether you like him or you dislike him, you can't ignore him. He's become that kind of a player and obviously he's a fantastic talent. But to come back to the, you know, the dilemma that the Indian selectors and the Indian team management will have now, now that Virat Kohli is coming. So, I this is what I feel. My surmise is fantastic. He has to replace somebody in the middle order, which has to be either from Pujara or Rani now because you can't drop certainly uh, and then you got the string of all-rounders so you can't drop any of them so I think the you know whether it's Rahane or Pujara is one part the other is keeping in mind that India is going to South Africa next which is an overseas tour where pitches can be tough and difficult because the ball you know they are they are faster pitches uh, and it requires a little more or lots more experience I think Dravid and uh, Virat and the selectors might be eager to get more experience in the squad. So, they'll give another chance to, in my opinion, to both these guys in, in Mumbai, in the Bombay Test. And replace, say, uh, opener Mayank Agarwal with KS Bharat. Uh, if Riziman Saha is not fit, if he is fit, Riziman Saha and Shumban Gil could be the openers. Now, both those positions are also uh, not fixed, you know. Because if Pant comes back, then Saha loses his place. And if when Rohit and Rahul come back, obviously Shubman Gill is not in the running. But if if Saha or KS Bharat opens the innings with Mayank or with Shubman Gill, then Virat walks in into the team without dislodging either Rahane or Pujara. That's the best case scenario for these two senior pros, Pujara and Rahane. Or, or, or another scenario is that one of them is dropped. Virat Kohli is accommodated. Both these openers are retained. And of course, everything else moves. The worst case scenario for them is that both are dropped. And somebody like a Surya Kumar Yadav is tried out along with uh, Virat who comes back and takes his place. And therefore, you know, they are building and looking ahead. Okay, guys, okay, you, you, you know, last three years you had a pretty lean trot. So maybe you need to go back and regain your form and then fight your way back into the team. So, all these things are possible. But I think most likely it's going to be that, you know, they will be part of the squad. If they're part of the squad, then you play them. Yeah. You know? There's enough experience there. But here's another scenario where uh, Saha sits out and Bharat makes uh, his uh, mark or his entry into the team. Mayank Agarwal is dropped for uh, a trial to Surya Kumar Yadav, even if it's in the opening slot. And the rest of the middle order remains untouched and makes way for uh, Virat Kohli. So that's that's another possible uh, scenario. But uh, you're right. It's well, there, there are other, look, there are countless possibilities, Mr. Fantastic. It could be that Pujara can open along with Mayank or with Shubman. And Pujara has in the past opened. So Virat Kohli comes in. But of course, Virat will have to bat number three. Or if he still wants to bat at number four, then he has to send Rahane at three or Shreya Sayur at three. You know, I mean, so... All kinds of possibilities are there. But what, what the clear message is and what you and I are both actually, in a sense, running around in circles trying to discuss is that both Rahani and Pujara are under strict scrutiny. They are under a lot of pressure. And their places are by no means secure. Remember, the unfortunate Hanuma Vihari, you know, that also means that Shreya Sayar has been lucky. Because had Hanuma Vihari not been forgotten by the selectors and then finally put sent off to Australia with India A, 
he would have played the test. And, you know, so sometimes life rolls out, uh, doles out some luck. And I think it, it has helped Shreya Sayyar. But I don't think that Pujara and Rahane can now depend any longer on luck. I think it's not an issue of luck anymore. It has to be about their talent and their performance and they have to deliver. Absolutely. I think they've reached the end of the rope uh, in terms of their opportunities. What does Riddhiman Saha's future really look like? I mean, he had an injury. He sat out for the most... Uh, he didn't really keep wickets in New Zealand's first innings. But he came back and had a really strong uh, half-century in the second innings, which set up the test match for India. So, what is his role? Is he... Are we going to see him around much longer? Definitely not after Rishabh Pant is back. But even now with uh, Shikhar Bharat, who did a good job in the first innings. Well, I, I really think that Mumbai could be his swan song. If he's fit enough to play, if his neck is not giving him a problem, then Rudiman Sahi is 37. Your first wicket, you know, wicketkeeper choice is Rishabh Pant. And then you can't have Rudiman Saha as the second wicketkeeper in the team at 38. Then And Bharat has made such a favourable impression, uh, even as a substitute then it makes sense to take him as the second wicketkeeper to South Africa. So, I think that Riziman Saha, he's had a pretty unfortunate career when you look at it very transparently because he's been in and out of the team for sometimes for no fault of his. He's had a long wait before that because Dhoni was playing and he's been an ex, he's excellent technically. He's also very good when it comes to batting. He's not a star, but he's been a, he's been a very efficient player as he showed in the second innings here. But I think time's running out for him. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, he's he's had a stop-start career, 39 test matches, average just under 30. He's had a few test centuries as well, but never really got an extended run. And it's like a lot of other athletes who kind of grew up in the Tendulkar era and therefore lost out on chances. He's had to live under the shadow of MS Dhoni for the most part of his career. Yeah, he has. And, you know, it's one of those things that, you know, sometimes these these stories make, I mean, these careers make such great stories, you no know, heart-rending stories. And Saha is one of them. Uh, it's a tragedy. Almost. Moving on to some other cricketing action. We've had Bangladesh uh, and Pakistan uh, going head-on in a test match that has just started. Oh, that's Sorry, that's just about to finish. Pakistan had a tough time, conceded the lead, but are now on track to win. By the time we release this, they might have just finished off Bangladesh yet again. We're also looking at some other interesting sports from around the world. We've got a look at the Junior World Cup currently taking place in Bhuvneshwar, where India has made the quarterfinals. They finished second in their pool with a 2-1 win-loss record, losing only to France. Uh, they will now face Belgium in the quarterfinals. But that's not the most interesting part about this tournament. You know, This has probably been one of the highest-scoring hockey tournaments I have ever witnessed. Have you ever seen these scorelines, Ayaz? 14-0, 12-5, 17-0, 13-1... It's crazy. There are badminton games that have fewer points sometimes. <laughs> well, you know, these these, these scorelines are between mismatches. You know, I mean, you have a Germany or Argentina playing Egypt, you'll get that kind of a scoreline. But you're right. But this is the trend of modern hockey. You know, when I was doing the Olympics uh, television coverage, and we used to sometimes think about, you know, scorelines of 5-3, 6-4 uh, between two big teams. And those were unthinkable. Imagine... In the early days when I started watching hockey, of course, it was on grass, not on Astro. Uh, you know, 2-1, 3-1 would be a rarity. When it became a seven, you know, seven goals mauling that we received in the Asian Games in 1982, all hell broke loose. So, uh, the AstroTurf makes the game faster, makes the game more 
tilted towards scoring more goals because the breakaways happen. The penalty corners have become so specialized. Players are specialists are chosen only for the penalty corner conversions, etc., etc. So I think that uh, hockey has become is is a very fast paced game. It's a very data driven game, and getting tennis kind of scores is not unusual today. But yes, of course, twelve zero and thirteen one. Are, are they they show a complete mismatch but well more interesting than that is and we'll have to go through a lot of record books to figure out if this has ever happened on the 25th of november 70 goals were scored in five matches <laughs> yeah the lowest score on that day was a 7-1 win for france over poland i mean how badly would france have had to play to score only seven On a day where seventy goals were scored, it's crazy. It's become it's becoming wild. But it also look this is the Junior World Cup, so in a sense you're also getting an idea of the trend where hockey is going. So you may be right. I mean, there might be a scenario where ten six, eleven eight would become fairly regular score lines. I'll just draw. It's not an analogy with cricket, but let me just tell you what's happened, and let's not discuss. the current test match which i mean the test match which just got over with the scoring rate was so poor 1.8 and 2 runs per over but in modern cricket in test cricket as we've seen teams scoring in 90 overs in a day scoring 330 340s you know rather common yeah it's the norm these days you expect a team to be close to 300 uh, on a day while uh, about 40 50 about 40 50 years ago if you scored 10 250 you would get you know like you would be applauded off the field and you know everybody would talk of how wonderfully you've done to score 250 runs in a day but changing trends i think hockey anyways has always been a very fast paced game and a lot of the rule changes the rolling substitutions the lack of offside but talking up talk about talking about hockey i must mention here that india is in the is qualified for the knockouts but one team which hasn't is pakistan yes and i was reading a report in uh, one of my ex colleagues mehir wasawla who is very perceptive about hockey and he meets the right kind of people and one of the problems that that he's highlighted about pakistan and i'm saying that in the context of subcontinent hockey which one time was an ornament to the game that the pakistan hockey system is still locked up in the past the players are not taught to play attacking aggressive hockey on artificial turf they are talking about what happened in you know in 1982 world cup or 68 olympics or or stuff like that and living on past glory india have made that jump they moved ahead after spending 3 4 decades lamenting and in the, you know in the being modeling about what used to be they moved ahead pakistan haven't which is why they're going back home otherwise you know in, in junior hockey you would expect pakistan to be at least qualifying but why you know it's not strange at all when you consider that in the tokyo olympics pakistan didn't feature at all in hockey that's true and even in fact given a lot of the other uh, travel related restrictions there are a few teams missing in this tournament as well nonetheless india plays belgium in their quarter final let's hope we're able to talk about them making uh, a further move up into the knockouts when we catch up next starting this week we've got a special guest who'll be joining us every episode Siju Matthew of the Totally Indian Football Show is joining us and here she is to give us a round up of all things ISL. Welcome to the show Siju. Hello everyone, I'm Siju, host of the Totally Indian Football Show. The Indian Super League is in its 8th season and I'm here to bring you the updates of how it's going so far. The league began with a thumping win for ATK Mohan Bagan 
who sit on top of the points table with two wins against Kerala Blasters and their rivals East Bengal. Chennai and FC have had a great start to their season with two wins. While Jamshedpur FC, considered the dark horse, have got a mighty win against FC Goa and a draw against East Bengal. Bengaluru FC, who are in their rebuild mode, have played three games so far, a win, a draw and a loss to their name. While teams like Mumbai City, Odisha, Kerala Blasters and East Bengal have to play a catch-up game to enter the top four, hey, but it's just the start of the season. Surprisingly though, the league favourites FC Goa are yet to win a game. They've played two matches and have lost both. And they sit at the bottom of the points table. There's a lot to do for Juan and his men. Well, that's about it for today. For all things Indian football, follow and subscribe to the Totally Indian Football Show on all major platforms. Until next week, enjoy the ISL. That was wonderful hearing Siju talk about the ISL. I mean, you know, Mr. Fantastic. Uh, I think Indian, the Indian, the sports scenario in India is getting so rich. And apart from the competitive, uh, you know, the the flavor of competition that is coming in, it's just like the expanse of sports. So it's you know, cricket obviously is the huge, most hugely popular sport. But other sports like badminton, football, the ISL, kabaddi, they all becoming big. Hockey after the you know the achievement at the, at the Tokyo Olympics and so on. So I think it's great to have somebody. You know, we'll have a feature in football every week, which is fantastic. Absolutely. And continuing with football, we've got Samil uh, in the fold, and he'll give us a roundup of everything that happened in the Premier League and other European leagues, plus a bit of sad news from the world of Formula One and other roundup. Over to you, Samil. Hi, Mr. Fantastic. Thank you so much. So much in the world of football to talk about. And I have a big smile on my face being a Manchester United fan. Of course, not only because of our result, which I shall get to in a second, but also because Manchester United have appointed a brand new interim manager. And it may finally seem that they've taken that one big step towards securing their long-term footballing future. More on that in a second. But let's start with the Premier League roundup. Let's talk about the big fixtures of this weekend and what really happened. And we have to start with Manchester United because we had a big-ticket fixture up against Chelsea. And boy, oh boy, this was some game to look at. In terms of the results front, it might come across as a very evenly squared-up game with Chelsea drawing 1-1 against United at home. And it may come across as a very disappointing result for Chelsea because now their lead at the top is only one point with Manchester City just completely breathing down them with 29 points and Liverpool up with 28. But Chelsea, they have slipped up again. And let's be honest, it wasn't half as close as the scoreline suggests. United were nowhere close to being an even equal team all the way through. Chelsea were dominant. They asserted their style and even with an injured Romelu Lukaku, they still look like the team to beat in the first half. It actually took Manchester United around 40 minutes to register their first touch within the Chelsea attacking third. And then even a few more minutes to register their first touch within the attacking D. That is some crazy stuff. 24 shots by Chelsea to the three of United. 66% possession, which was way higher in the first half. You could tell this was meant to be Chelsea's game. But then again... An error from Jorginho. An error from him in the second half allowed Jadon Sancho just to get past. But a sloppy defending by Jorginho. Sancho went ahead and scored. And eventually, Chelsea got a penalty because Thiago Silva got fouled in uh, by, uh, by Aaron Van Bissaka. And so Jorginho converted and actually redeemed his mistake in a way. So Chelsea were able to equalise. But had Rudiger's goal got in, in the very end of the game, things would have been slightly different. 
It was a game of inconsistency for Chelsea where they dominated play but were not clinical enough in front of goal. Beat with Werner, beat with Ziyech, beat with Hudson-Odoi. That's where they lacked things. Maybe Lukaku, had he been on there, things would have been slightly different. But again, just returning from injury. And Manchester United, well, they were... uh, You couldn't call them spineless. This was certainly a better performance than what we saw a few weeks ago. But this team was designed to stop Chelsea, not to attack. Only three shots in the game. Ronaldo was benched in favour of Jadon Sancho, so that they could go for a more defensive midfield three of Fred McTominay and Matic. And eventually, that was the deal-breaker in a way that sort of defended the match for Man United. Not that they would have drawn had Ronaldo been there. Again, it's a case of what-ifs and what could have been. But having Scott McTominay in there definitely saved some credibility for Man United. But this cannot be dubbed as a good performance. Either way, one point apiece, Chelsea get things even tighter at the top. Speaking of the top, speaking of things being really tight, we saw West Ham losing steam. They got beat by Manchester City 2-1 and their run of form seems to be going in a complete drop. This would have been 1-0 for the majority of the game. It actually even was with Gundogan scoring the first goal. But Fernandinho, he eventually scored a 90th minute uh, second goal and Lanzini had to equalise right at the very end. A very slow game from the circumstances because it was being played in the snow And it was intense physicality. They had to play completely according to the circumstances. And City were just better. Man City were just better. Even though their styles really contradict both of City and West Ham, City just had assertive dominance. And West Ham, they just couldn't manufacture enough chances. Which is strange to say because they're a team that is very good on the counter-attack, but just were blunt in front of Manchester City, who are actually regaining steam. And West Ham are losing it. Arsenal 1-2-0 against Newcastle. Things are looking good over there. Brentford beat Everton 1-0. So that was a really surprising one. They have been turning a lot of heads so far this year. But Liverpool winning 4-0 against Southampton. Things are good. The Merseyside Express is in full flow. And in the Premier League, seriously, things are heating up. But can it heat up with Manchester United? Who is the new interim manager? Well, Manchester United have just gone in there, Mr. Fantastic. And they've appointed Ralph Ragnick. Now, Ralph is not the biggest name in the world of football, guaranteed. He's no Jurgen Klopp or he's no Thomas Tuchel by the name value. But Dragnik is the manager that influenced both these managers' game plan. He's the one that introduced the famous Gegenpress tactic. And that is something that completely transformed the game of German football. In fact, you might know him from his stint at RB Leipzig. And at Leipzig, believe it or not, He took that club from the 4th division up to 2nd in the Bundesliga in the space of 4 years. 4 years! It's ridiculous how good this guy is. And Ragnick is known to be someone very technical, very keen in terms of football. In fact, he's known to be a football encyclopedia and knows almost everything about every player in all of Europe. He's that much into it. Eventually, United had to poach him away from Lokomotiv Moscow where he had a, a consultancy role with the club. But now United have their man. He will be there for six months. And the reason why I feel that this is a very astute appointment is the fact that Ralph Ragnick has been appointed as a consultant for Man United for the next two years after his stint ends. So there is someone experienced who knows his football, knows how to make the right decisions there with the team for two years to guide them in the long-term success, regardless of whoever the manager is. And just one last thing to add on Ralph Ragnick. He is a coach who prefers high-intensity, energy, tackling, pressing, all the things that Manchester United are absolutely bottom in the league at. This can be a fundamental change. Keep an eye on this one. 
Yeah, Mr. Fantastic, it's a bit of a shame, really, to conclude this episode in this way. But Frank Williams, the legendary founder of Team Williams, uh, has unfortunately passed away at the age of 79. And there has not been one person with a bad word to say about Mr. Williams. Of course, he sold, he and the family sold off the team back in 2020, but they had been running it early on since the 1970s. They've won so many world championships. They've produced world championship winning drivers like Nigel Mansell, like Damon Hill, like Alan Prost. They've had so many legends in the team. Alan Jones is another name that comes to mind. Keke Rosberg is another name that comes to mind. Absolute bona fide legends of the world of Formula 1. And yes, the team tailed off. But the impact of Frank Williams cannot be understated. In fact, he's, his story is amazing. Frank Williams was such a gritty and a plucky character from what it's portrayed as. He always used to work. In fact, Frank Williams, on the day of his marriage, he was so passionate about Formula 1 and race cars that just right after marrying, his wife had to have lunch alone because Frank went back to the factory to work on his Formula 1 car. Amazing stories. And he unfortunately was paralyzed from uh, his bottom down in a road car accident back in 1987 when he was driving a bit too fast, crashed on the public roads and eventually hurt himself. But even then, even though he was on a wheelchair for the rest of his life, always there at the paddock, always attending the races whenever his health could allow and just directing the team, controlling it and having such an influence. Let's be honest, he, he was no revolutionary. He was no innovation guru or something like that. But just the plucky, gritty nature of running a small team with considerably lower risk, considerably lower resources than anyone else. For so many years, Williams were the team to go to. And that's all because of Frank Williams. What a man, what a legend. And yeah, his impact can't be forgotten. That's all I can say. The Williams family might no longer be in Formula 1. But when you have a Mount Rushmore of Formula 1 team bosses, Frank Williams certainly has to be there. What, what an absolute legend. And the Williams team will be hoping that when they go to Saudi Arabia, when they go to Jeddah in the coming weekend, they can do something special to honor his memory because he was such an inspiring figure. And in Jeddah, that's the fun part. The first ever Saudi Arabian Grand Prix will be happening this weekend. And realistically, Max Verstappen has a chance to become world champion for the first time this weekend. All he needs to do is to win this race and for Lewis Hamilton to finish lower than sixth. Now, let's be honest. That does not happen. Hamilton in his current trim of car has been so fast. He's been dominating races, taking pole by half a second. You should watch out for this weekend at the Jeddah Grand Prix in Saudi Arabia. Yeah, it might not be the best country in the world for human rights, but the circuit seems fast. Only the second fastest on the entire Formula 1 calendar and the excitement is real. Two races to go in the championship and we will be covering all of this on the Inside Line F1 podcast, also produced by Idea Brew Studios. And I can't wait to tell you more on Sports Weekly. But that's all from the world of Formula 1 today, Mr. Fantastic. Can't, can't, can't wait seriously to see how this plays out. Thanks so much, Samil. That was amazing as always. It's a pleasure to have been part of the show again with this growing group of sports enthusiasts and experts. Until next time, thank you very much. Thank you, Mr. Fantastic. Always a pleasure being on the show with you. And, well, we'll wait and see what happens in Mumbai in the second test match, India versus New Zealand.